hundred years. <laughs> Why are you crying? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 500years.org podcast. Today, it's March 8th, 2016. And today's theme is... Disney, fun time, and the murder of the family. Let's see what happens. Welcome aboard Disney Cruise Line. Here's a quick look at just some of the exciting places and fun activities waiting for you to explore during your voyage on the Disney Dream. Every evening on board the Disney Dream, you're invited to enjoy a truly unique dining experience as you and your service team embark on a culinary journey through the ship's exciting restaurants. For those seeking a glamorous night out, the Royal Palace is a tribute to classic Disney films where guests are treated like royalty. Located on Deck 3 midship, the Royal Palace serves world-class continental cuisine with a modern French influence, making meals fit for a monarch. So I am fit to be a monarch. I just took my family on the Disney Dream Cruise. Uh, the Disney Dream Cruise is a $900 million boat that has room for 4,000 passengers and 1,500 crew members. It's a four-night cruise that goes to the Bahamas and then to Disney's own private island, Castaway Key. It seemed like a perfect time for my family to go. It was really a Goldilocks time in our life where we had some money, for one. Two, our children were sort of just the perfect age for Disney. My youngest daughter is four, so she could really appreciate the characters and the Disney fun. My oldest daughter is 10 and is just still enjoying things like princesses and cartoons and stuff, but probably won't be pretty soon. And then my boy at eight is right in the middle. Now, we had a good time on this cruise, but I can't say I would recommend anyone else going, and nor would I go again. And for a lot of things were just key calculations that I didn't know. So I'm going to give you a quick review, as if this was a consumer report on the Disney cruise but it got me to thinking a lot about a lot of other things, all Disney. And I'm going to share, with, share these thoughts with you in this podcast. So first of all, we went first class, which was essential, because if we didn't, we would have had a really awful time. In the first class situation, when we first showed up, there was probably you know all 4,000 people waiting in line to check in, go through customs, and get their tickets, get their uh cards that they use to buy drinks and other merchandise. It's a cash-free boat. And the first-class passengers go to this nice little lounge where they skip all the lines. The people, there's several people to help in the check-in process, and then they escort you through a secret door onto the boat. They took us up to our stateroom, which was amazing for a cruise ship. I don't know if you've been on one, but they're usually absolutely tiny. This thing had a besides a master bedroom and a master bathroom with a soaking tub and a shower, had a living room, a dining area, and a second bathroom, all just beautifully done. Some of the most expensive and well-put-together trim I've ever seen, and that was the same for the whole boat. The deck that we had, the, the porch looking over the 11th story, 
side of the boat over the ocean, very up high. The, the veranda itself for the porch was probably about 300 square feet easily. It could have had a whole dining area and a lounging area in itself. Right above us was a private first-class lounge where they gave us free snacks and drinks that only only the first-class passengers could go to. And above that was a first-class private sun deck with its own hot tub, which almost nobody was ever in. And that was probably the only thing that really saved the trip. Without that, we would have been stuck in the mass of the rabble, uh, which were almost consistently overcrowded and disgusting. The service was incredible. The Even upon entering the ship, everyone knew our names. They had pre-planned with the uh, their database, their CRM stuff, that they would, they would know our names. We showed up for dinner. Our names would be printed on the cups that the kids would use. We had several dedicated pe- people who would only have a handful of customers to serve, and even our waiter would travel with us from dining room to dining room each night to ensure that he knew our preferences. The private island that they Disney has is a fairly large island in the Bahamas that had one of the most beautiful beaches I've ever seen and just wonderful beach architecture. It's like almost like Disney invented a beach and a beach experience and took credit for it. Everything from the chairs to the scuba rental to the giant water slide that you had to swim out to get to to the special eating stations, stores, bars, etc. That part was probably the funnest part of the trip. Like all Disney things, there are character sightings where they have people in costumes who stand around, give out hugs and autographs, and then offer to have a photo taken. This practice, which they do at the parks, has never made any sense to me because I would figure any four-year-old, five-year-old can quickly see that this is just a person in a suit and has very little to do with the characters they've seen on screen. Yet people line up in these massive queues to have, you know, to meet these people. When you go to the parks, and I saw this too on the boat, the strangest thing is when you see a group of Japanese adults all in their 40s and 50s with no children in tow, waiting in line for an hour to see a person dressed up like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. I truly don't understand it. And even though I didn't understand it, and I swore that my four-year-old totally saw through the whole gag, that didn't stop her from wanting to wait in preposterously long lines to see such B-list characters as Chip and Dale. One of the big attractions on a cruise ship, Disney or otherwise, is the gluttony of the food situation. Essentially, for each meal, from breakfast all the way through dinner and even till midnight, they run a buffet probably no less than 200 yards long with probably no less than 700 different food items, if I were to estimate. Everything from crab claws and cold shrimp to carving stations of roast beef, pizza, uh, other exotic things, lamb chops, more food than you possibly could imagine. And people just seem to love this, uh, being able to stuff themselves multiple times with these enormous choices. And I think that's truly a draw of the ship. And when you walk around, you'll see that everyone is absolutely enormous for the most part. Uh, there was no uh, sneaking peeks of bikini, you know, bikini babes. This was all, you know, mid America, 
heavy, you know, let's see if we could push things to 300 pounds. And then for dinner, uh, we would be ushered into these crowded restaurants where although there was a menu, they would still encourage you to order things, since it was all-inclusive, to order things that you had no intention of eating that maybe you were just going to have a bite of. So even if you did over-order and ordered things that you were only going to try, when dessert came around, you couldn't really re- refuse. The waiter would just bring you a couple desserts anyways. Now, this this wasn't too impressive for me because I'm, I'm no longer, unlike when I was 12 or maybe 20, interested in seeing how much food I could actually consume in one sitting and taking that Thanksgiving-like joy of absolutely stuffing myself. I've trained myself not to do that, uh, so I'd, I don't have that 300-pound footprint. What they also, another thing I didn't calculate, is that they have engineered the food to be palatable to children. So there was almost nothing of any flavor, no matter how exotic or nicely prepared it looked. Uh, Everything was sort of at this base common denominator of no flavor. And that's not to say that only fancy foods or cuisine has a lot of flavor, because you've had buffalo wings, you've had chili, you've had hamburgers and tacos. All of those foods can be very spicy and alive with flavor. But they didn't have anything like that. Everything was absolutely bland. The entertainment on the boat was touted as a big selling point because they have two theaters, one a movie theater and then another a Broadway theater. And the size of these theaters is really impressive, maybe seating one to 2,000 people on side of a boat, each one. But the plays that they put on were absolutely insipid. They were awful. They were trite. They were, you know, something you would see uh, high schoolers do to impress little kids. And at first thought, I was like, well, this is uh, a trip for kids, so maybe that's who they're trying to appeal to. But Disney, being an entertainment company, has made their whole careers for 70 or 100 years of creating children's movies that can also appeal to adults. Anything from their Pixar catalog, of course, and most of their Disney classics, have always appealed to both adults and children. So I don't know how they screwed that up so badly. And the other calculation I didn't make was the crowds. And if you've been to anything Disney, crowds and waiting in line are all part of the experience. So much so that you'd almost think that Disney, being evil bastards, loves to watch people wait in line. But that's not really the case. What the case is is that they have these hugely expensive assets that have to be occupied to make money whether it's the theme park or this $900 million boat. And so they just have to stuff it with people. So that sort of stopped us from using most of the activities on the boat. And, for example, they had two swimming pools that were so stuffed full of people, they sort of looked like the nature special when tadpoles are drowning in the middle of the desert because there's only a puddle of water and 9,000 tadpoles. And my children... Not being that impressed with pools, because we live down south and we have a a community pool that's a short walk from our house, wouldn't even go near it. So doing the whole swimming sunshine thing wasn't really on the menu, except for that private beach that we went to. And then my wife and I remembered uh, how uh, claustrophobic and sort of uh, sickened or scared of huge amounts of crowds. I, I I think most people are. But then all of a sudden you realize you're sort of trapped on this uh, metal, hermetically sealed monstrosity of a boat with 4,000 other people that you don't know or or don't care to know. So that made dining also very unpleasant 
just to feel how crowded and noisy it was. It made the hallways kind of unbearable to walk through. It made the the pools and the theater experiences just awful. So the only sanctuary we had was this first class private sun deck that we could retreat to. And we could also retreat to our very nice suite, but we didn't actually pay to go on a boat to be in the sun and everything to hang out in what's essentially a small hotel room. The other big problem is all sorts of friends and family have boasted about this wonderfully immersive experience of the kids club. The kids club was this 10,000 square foot facility where you drop off your kids. They have all special electronic armbands to check the the ins and outs of these children and you ditch them there and the idea is the kids go out and have fun with these sort of counselors and other kids and then the adults can either hang out by the bar uh, go to the adult only pool hang out in the sun and otherwise relax perhaps read a book and then you separate parent and adult for a few hours of the day and the kids supposedly love this rich immersive disney experience and supposedly you can't drag them out of there and when I heard about this, I, I first thought of all the families, unlike mine, where mom and dad work from you know nine to five, plus the commute, plus overtime, and kids all go to school from 6 a.m. until latchkey is over. And the only family times these people have are those little scraps of time at night where they're rushing around to have dinner and do homework, or the few minutes in the morning where it's like, get out of bed, you got to go to school, i got to go to work, quick, eat breakfast. And then the packed weekends where they have tons of soccer or dad goes and plays golf and where the the family doesn't really see each other anymore. And this is so common in America where two-income families and kids in school mean no family for most of the time. So it seemed pretty gross that the whole point of the cruise ship was that you got there and you had this option, you know, for this only one, you know, one or two or three weeks that you have off to spend with your children is you poured them off to this almost uh, preschool-like place and then that you get to safely ignore them uh, just like you do in your regular life. Now, to us, this was more appealing because I don't work, my wife doesn't work, and our kids are homeschooled, so we're we're all together all 24-7. And so this would would have seemed like a nice break, uh, a nice change of pace. And especially since how well-rated this kid's experience was, you know, that they would love it so much, we thought, well, hey, this is the only time in our lives they're going to get to do it. So anyway, we drop the kids off, and about an hour and a half after they're there, we get a call from these special cell phones that they have on the boat, and the youngest one's crying, and the older two want to go. They're done with this event. Apparently, they don't like being dropped off into a windowless environment with 100 other kids and being told what to do by counselors. And Perhaps this is the lack of socialization that homeschool kids go through, that they become intolerant of being put in sort of these non-free situations. I'm not sure, or maybe my kids are just weird, but they didn't like the little access they had to the facilities. They didn't like uh, being told what to do and didn't like being shoved in with a bunch of other kids that they didn't know. So I'm going to assume that this is partly a reaction to them being raised in a free way that they actually start rejecting the notion of things that feel like school whereas the other school kids probably saw this as being the the same sort of status quo school experience they had but it was all fun and it was all disney so it was a wild improvement over being put on a bus and 
touted to the elementary school to sit in a desk and be quiet. Here they got, instead of put on a bus, they could go through a security gate. And then instead of doing boring, doing boring math and reading, they get to play. And so even being having a bit of free play in a school-like trapped environment just seems wonderful. I don't know. That's just something to think about. But that uh, made a big dent in the trip because then we didn't get to have either one of those experiences. Uh, neither the adults uh, having that time alone nor the kids having the wonderful immersive experience. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. One thing that I began thinking about on the Disney cruise was the role of fun and entertainment in the human experience. And this is going to be a completely incomplete analysis, drawing more questions than conclusions. In fact, it's going to be all questions and no conclusions. But when I looked at something like the Disney Cruise, there seemed to be a big part of the population that needed this constant sequence of events from the minute they woke up to the minute they went to bed, where it was, see this character, uh, go attack this breakfast bar, uh, do trivia at this place, swim in this pool for this movie, do this interactive, fun time Disney experience at the kids club, gorge yourself at the buffet, go to the Bahama Island for shopping excursion. And it was just all this, these, this line of extrinsically driven activities that they needed to be entertained with, like a constant source of entertainment makes up what a good vacation was. And I began to think, like, that's really not the profile of entertainment or fun that I like, at least not all the time. Other people especially in this adults lounge that they had, which was about a third of the upper deck, which is where all the shuffleboard courts and the swimming pools are. They had blocked off so that only people 18 and over could hang out there. And that was mostly to keep these people away from the children who they were trying to avoid. And in these, this place was like a graveyard of the fireflies. It was literally corpses sitting on... Uh, laying down on those lounge chairs or floating in the pool. And nobody was talking. Nobody was laughing. Nobody was even smiling. It was just like these eyes closed and scowls of people just sitting doing absolutely nothing. No reading, uh, no listening to podcasts or music. Just a complete uh, lethargic stupor. And, and I knew they weren't having an intrinsic entertainment experience where they were probably trying to figure out the meaning of the universe or, you know, studying the effects of the, the role, proper role of violence within a society or something cool like that. And I began to think that you could think of entertainment just like you think of work or learning as having different dimensions. So the first one I was trying to think of is the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic entertainment. So obviously something like watching a movie or going to the Disney musical review is extrinsic, where you watch and it's laid into your lap. Or the same as if they had water skiing or mountain climbing, where it's a... Maybe mountain climbing is not a great example, but 
something where you sign up for it and you go parasailing and you're drug around by a boat and it's thrilling but it's still sort of extrinsic in that it's an activity that you're not really drawing from yourself but intrinsic types of entertainment might be sitting on the patio having a wonderful conversation with a good friend about something complex or meaningful or it might be doing a like doing a podcast like I'm doing now this is entertainment for me but it's completely internally driven the same of reading some types types of books not every book uh, not not a cheap piece of uh, pulp fiction but a book that challenges you intellectually that sort of drives you to come up with your own ideas is very much intrinsic entertainment and so would be painting a picture and so would be writing a story and maybe in some ways tackling a challenge like climbing a hill or working out or, or working on something like that is a way of intrinsically driving fun and there's a judgmental part of me that wants to say intrinsic entertainment might be a lot more valuable than extrinsic entertainment but i don't know if that's true because i enjoy extrinsic entertainment as well for example i like watching movies with my wife i enjoy playing video games with my children and to some extent i do like sitting in the sun or going swimming you can also think of entertainment as having passive or active dimensions. So passive being things that you just sit and experience, and active ones being things that you have to control. So driving a go-kart or going swimming is an active form of entertainment, and watching a movie or being reading a, a fiction book might be considered passive. And the other one, and these all sort of have very tight correlations, the visceral versus intellectual or immersive versus externalized, where some entertainments like doing heroin is very immersive or very visceral. It's very much about changing your body and having a physical stimulation, whereas intellectual uh, or emotional, you know, might be having an experience that challenges your brain or makes you laugh, or makes you think differently. So to think about entertainment on these different dimensions, had I, had I thought about what I wanted to experience before I signed up for the Disney Cruise, perhaps I would have looked at what was being offered and said, you know what, that doesn't fit me or my family. I should do something different. About a year ago, I went with my friends who we were visiting and we were looking for something to do in this town that we didn't know much about. And we were just sort of scouring the, not the yellow pages, but the entertainment guide for something that would be entertaining. And even though our favorite thing to do together is to talk endlessly about politics and ethics, we found a rope climbing course, which is a series of ropes and bridges through a course of trees that the ropes and swings and whatever are somewhere between a probably 12 feet high and 50 feet high and they strap on mountain climbing equipment and you do these obstacle courses and so we did this and it turned out to be the worst idea in the world for me since i'm actually absolutely terrified of heights and so i lasted about 15 minutes and then threw my hands down and took off my helmet and my harness and just thought like what the fuck what am i what am i doing this i i knew before i even arrived here in the car that i wouldn't want to do it but that's how desperate sometimes, I guess, some people can be, like myself, for finding something that's entertaining without giving it a lot of thought. 
I almost wonder if there could be a book or a guide on figuring out your entertainment profile and figuring out what would make yourself entertained and happy based on different dimensions and different activities. And that would help people say, hmm, the Disney cruise sounded good, but maybe it's not for me. Take me in Meg's place. The son of my hated rival trapped forever in a river of death. Going once! I've always sort of wondered why vacations are often taken somewhere that's worse than where you live. And this isn't uncommon at all, because just about every vacation that I've ever been on, we've had to stay somewhere that's been notably compromised from where we have uh, life at home. Whether it's, for, for whatever reason, on, on the TV and the hotel rooms, how they can't figure out how to tell you which channel or what show you're watching, even though that's 15-year-old technology, uh, to the bed that's not quite as comfortable, to the room that's com- super tiny compared to anything you would withstand at home, to the complete unavailability of adequate drinking water. And I'd mean this at a nice hotel, too, because no one really wants to you know, drink the crappy water from this strange town out of the hotel or to the absence of snacks and food and the kind of thing that you have at home to the absence of having multiple bathrooms that you don't have to wait for and share with your five-person family to having to eat every single meal outside of the house in many occasions. When my friend Isaac Morehouse, for a complete year before he went to Ecuador, Every time we got to hear the story of how we would have to this very onerous amount of travel where then he would have to drive, you know, drive to Miami, fly to Ecuador, take this three hour drive to this small town. The grocery store would be three hours away. The drinking water you couldn't use to brush your teeth with. There'd be no air conditioning. It'd be extremely humid. You have to use mosquito nets. You wouldn't understand the language. And then later when they got there, we heard about the garbage and everything. But anyway, the whole time he he was going up to it, and I couldn't tell him this, uh, I just thought like, wow, that sounds like a whole list of inconveniences and uncomfortableness and something that would just be putting yourself in a, a horrible, uncomfortable situation that you wouldn't withstand at home. Wouldn't it be better to go on vacation and be somewhere that's nicer than home? Now, of course... The Morehouses were going for more transformative experiences to have an adventure and to immerse themselves in a different culture. So I understood that. So, but still, when I, when I heard the whole dimensions of the trip, I just couldn't help thinking that this was a vacation that was worse than home. And of course, you know, I'm discounting things like they would be right on the ocean, that they would have exotic food, a completely different cost structure than you'd be used to in the United States, and would meet people that they wouldn't meet anywhere else in the world. So I didn't mean to discount those, but I'm just saying that's what how I heard it when the description came out. But I have a better story than that. When I was growing up, my dad bought a 14-foot camper uh, from uh, a neighbor, and we would drive it up to this town called Caseville in Michigan, which was up north from Detroit on the east side of the state on, uh, what is that, Lake Huron, I guess? And Caseville was an absolute dump. It had like a one-screen movie theater and a pizza place and was other otherwise maybe had like a feed and seed store. And I don't think they even had a karate parlor because usually when you have a crappy town, that's the one thing that's necessary after you have a pizzeria and a feed and seed store. And the beach there was absolutely disgusting. It was sort of, they didn't have sand, but it was like sort of this brown squishy mud uh, going into lake huron and where we parked the camper 
was not like in the woods, so you'd have this glorious camping experience where you, maybe you had some cramped sleeping quarters, but you'd go, go out and have a beautiful vista and beautiful woods. Instead, it was like a dirt lot that hundreds of people would park their campers about 10 feet away from each other, and they would all have electric and maybe septic hookups. I'm not sure. I can't remember. And the vacations, if we were all, the four of us, my sister, my mom, my dad, and I, would be sort of trapped in this little tiny 14-foot trailer. And I think both my parents, or at least my dad, smoked constantly at that point. Uh, The sleeping quarters were tables that turned into beds. Everything was total junk. You had to cook on these tiny little surface areas, like one burner. The shower was smaller than a... The bathroom, rather, and shower was smaller than an airplane bathroom. And you literally had to sit on the toilet to spray yourself... And then the only other excursions were to either go to the pizzeria, where I think they might have had a Defender game at the time, I'm not sure if my memory serves, go to this terrible beach, or sometimes go fishing, which I never really liked. And the whole experiences were awful, to the point where the family would grow so impatient with each other that there would just be constant fighting as you sat through these billows of smoke, cigarette smoke, and of course my dad was a heavy drinker, um... So the whole thing was just awful. But this was called vacation. And my dad would get time off from work. And the the great idea was to get in the car and go visit the 14-foot camper because that was what's going to be fun. And obviously, I don't think my dad thought this through for one second, nor did my mom. It was just a learned response from when they were kids. After all, uh, their parents probably took them on even crappier, more horrible vacations than that Caseville vacation. And so they probably just learned that to have fun is you drive up north and you stay somewhere crappy and you get mosquito bites and you suffocate on smoke and do nothing fun. I have to imagine if they thought about this for even five minutes, we would have been doing something different or we could have just stayed at home. I'm getting over a cold right now, so if you hear me start to wheeze, I'm getting ready to cough. And so I apologize for the bad audio. I wanted to talk on the same theme about my old office mate, Matt, who we shared an office for about a year, about 15 years ago. And Matt was a great guy. He was a little unconventional. He, for example, he didn't drink water, not even to brush his teeth, I think. Uh, He never drank a glass of water. He'd only drink Coca-Cola. And he never ate vegetables. His wife would insist once a year that he try a vegetable and then he would he would eat it, and then that would be it, and he wouldn't integrate that into his diet. But perhaps one of the stranger things was that he loved watching television, and he always fantasized about having a television-watching vacation, where it would just be like watching television shows at home, in your living room, on the couch, except the couch would be better, the beer that you drank would be tastier, and the screen would be bigger, and the selection of TV shows even greater. And Somehow, as insane of a notion of vacation as that would be, is just to have a bigger, better version of your living room. In some ways, it makes total sense that you would just magnify a part of your life that you like and call that vacation. And an unforgettable Disney vacation is all within your reach. About a year ago, I took my family, along with a friend's family, to a trip to a big theme park. Now, it wasn't Disney World, but it was lo- it was the Universal, which is located right by Disney World, and is generally the same kind of experience. You know, rides, 
exhibits, food. And we go to the ticket booth, and the price for the tickets is $99 per ticket. And the ticket attendant says, would you like to upgrade those to speed passes? You won't have to wait in line quite as much. And I was like, sure, yeah, tell me about it. And she said, these are $129. And so in the math of my head, I'm like, well, so regular tickets, $99. Speed passes, $129. That's only $30 more. I think we'll go for it. And there's a total of seven of us, eight of us in the, in the party. But and then she says, no, the speed pass is an additional $129 on top of the $99 ticket. And when she said that, I was sort of bullshit. I'm like, I can't pay uh, $240 just to visit a theme park for one day. For the eight of us, we're looking at well over $1,000 and we probably weren't going to stay for the whole day anyways. Well, it turns out we were there during school vacation and most of the people in our party only got to ride one line the whole time we were there. It was so crowded that the wait times were an hour and a half to the point where it didn't even make sense to enter the park because what possible form of entertainment requires eight hours of standing in line for a return of a total of eight minutes of entertainment? It's wholesale insanity, and it's stupid. Now, if when we were driving back from the park, all exhausted and angry that we had spent so much money to do nothing except wait in line in the hot crowds, I did find the crowd tracker online. And you can do this before you go, if you're stupid enough to go to a theme park with your kids, there is this thing called the crowd calendar, and you can pick the times where no one else is there. turns out even August in the summertime is super busy because the Europeans all have the time off and they go there even though Florida is 150 degrees with a full humidity at that time. On another trip to Disney World, and someone's got to tell me why I've been there so many times, I go up to the gate to buy tickets, and they have automated kiosk, and I put in tickets for five, and of course they're $98 a piece, and I'm like, oh, shit, man, that's a lot. And I swipe my card and go, boy, that really sucked to have to spend 500 bucks to get in. And the first thing we have to do is find lunch because we waited too long to feed our kids. And when you do that and you have young children, they start to go bananas. They start to get cranky and crying. And and so we're racing around the park to find something to eat. And of course, when you go to Disney with young children, it's not like going anywhere else where people have sympathy when you're pushing the stroller and have these hot, tired kids because everybody's pushing a stroller and everybody has hot, crying kids. In other places, people help you out. They open the door. They get out of the way. They throw you a empathetic look, but not, not at Disney World. And then, of course, the first food place we come to, there's huge lines, and the kids have to go sit and just suffer as I wait for 30 minutes to get you know a couple hamburgers and a couple hot dogs and some bottles of water. And the bill for you know two hamburgers and three hot dogs and five bottles of water comes out to be... or something like that. And we're looking around and we almost for before we even got the food had thought about leaving and using the, you know, abandoning that, that sunk cost investment of the ticket price. And then after I got the food, I'm like, wow, this is really expensive. And I start looking around to the other people and I'm thinking I got to be the most affluent guy there. Everybody else is very middle class to even, you know, a middle lower class or maybe a middle upper class 
but I know none of them are making, you know, money in the six figures, uh, or probably anywhere near as much as I do, not even by a half. And I can't figure out why they can so easily go through the park without finding this to be just, you know, financially destructive or financially catastrophic. And that was almost the same experience with Disney Dream, the cruise ship, because the total expense for the four-night ride was close to $10,000, which when I say that back in the microphone, I almost throw up a little bit to think of what else we could have done with that time and money. Uh, $10,000 is still quite a, a bit of change to blow on four days on a crowded ship. And so I started doing a little bit of research on how Disney prevents people from feeling financially raped. And it turns out they have all these extensive programs to hide costs. So they have these saving accounts where month by month you put in a certain set amount, a certain tithe, uh, to buy this comprehensive package, which includes your hotel and your Disney tickets and even a card or a bracelet to buy food at. Uh, so, But the point is, is that you never see the transactions as they occur. Because anytime you're constantly pulling out your credit card and it's $500 here and it's $80 here and it's $290 here for the room and it's another you know $170 for this dinner, eventually, if you're like me, you just become sort of financially exhausted and it ruins whatever pleasure you're going to have in this vacation experience. So I sort of saw these tactics that they were doing to make sure that you never really saw the cost of what you were doing. And in some ways, it's very similar to how tax withholdings go. For mo the majority of Americans never get a tax bill at the end of the year where it's like, here, you owe us $50,000 and you write a big check and then your heart just like sinks out of your body. Instead, there's always this weird itemized list of smaller things that come out of your paycheck every two weeks and you never really see the aggregate. And even when you get your tax return done, few people probably look to see what that aggregate line was of what they paid. And they don't feel it anyways because they've already paid the money. They never saw it in the first place. And then sometimes they even get a return back, which is like, oh, wasn't that great? Uh, even though they, they put thousands of thousand dollars into this cost of government. So Disney, maybe schooling off that a bit, does the same thing. They do this automatic savings program. And then all you get at the end are your, your cards and your car key to your room and your tickets. And you don't see any of the expense ever. And it's pretty masterful. But to confirm this, just you know, besides my own research, I got to interview a former executive of Disney Parks. And the interview was about something wholly different. It was about an app that they're launching to help reduce wait times, which they said was one of their biggest issues. And I said, well, this isn't going to be in the paper that we're writing, but I, I want to talk about how Disney hides the financial burn that the customers go through. And he said, yeah, we have a lot of programs for that. And, and he took me very carefully through the different savings programs and the different ways they do to obscure cost for guests. And it was pretty fascinating and in some ways kind of sinister. I can't say they're too sinister. They're, they're a private company and people love their product and people willfully engage in this. But it is it does feel a little sneaky. The financial depression that people feel when they feel sort of financially abused of just getting their credit card out time and time again and just seeing the expenses and the transactions rack up beyond all belief is probably a very healthy thing to feel. I only tend to feel it typically when I'm on vacation 
and we're staying in a hotel and every single meal that we eat is eaten out and event you're buying for park tickets and stuff and eventually you have that bad feeling and it's probably instinctually good to know that if you're burning through your resources too quickly that you're probably doing something wrong now if we think of other places that try to obscure cost so that you don't really see how high they are we have of course the government being a premier example but two other areas we have are healthcare and education in healthcare they either try to bundle your healthcare payment along with your employment so that you do not see the actual cost or they have a blanket payment that you just pay once but don't ever see what you're actually incurring as far as real expense once you look back whether it's in the employer's hidden cost or in your explicit month to month cost few people want to look in there and and at the end of the year going oh my god holy shit i spent $12,000 on my healthcare or 20,000 if it's through your employer and i didn't even go to the doctors this year so by obscuring the pricing mechanism the transaction mechanism you can get people to spend way more than they probably would because they simply can't feel that burn that pain of feeling their resources drained education is often the same way so when people use the public school they don't think at all that they're paying somewhere between two to eleven thousand dollars per year in property taxes and paying that for 60 years of their life to consume as much school as they are because really getting knowledge for kids is extremely cheap knowledge is just everywhere it's on the internet it's in these cheap books and even if you were to put 30 kids in a classroom with one teacher you know ten thousand dollars per year per school per student you know are incredible budgets i've been through this before but even people don't even look to see how much they're spending that over a lifetime of you know ten thousand dollars in property taxes for 60 years is six hundred thousand dollars most of that money going to the schools being the city's most expensive line item and then for college they do this too they don't charge you for every time you show up at the classroom or every time that you learn something or even you know every time uh you have this instance of learning what it is is they give you this government loan and it's a hundred thousand dollars it's two hundred thousand dollars and it completely erases you from feeling that financial burn of draining resources that's the only way these things can work so while disney it seems pretty sinister I, I think everyone has a good separation of knowing that Disney is something that you sign up for, whereas things like healthcare, education, and the state are using these non-pricing, non-transaction models to hoodwink everyone into not caring about how much money they spend. <laughs> money, money, money. Oddly, despite prices being so healthy to us and so critical in maintaining economic life, a lot of people really hate prices. There's this whole book that I have, a friend of mine bought for me called The Value of Nothing by Raj Patel. And his entire case is that our entire pricing system is meaningless and destructive, even to the point where he talks about his childhood experience, uh, where he worked in a store with his family. And he would, as jokes, take the pricing gun and make a candy bar cost $1,000. And then he would change the pricing stickers on the gun to make a penny. And then he chases brother around. And he said, that's how arbitrary prices were. In his mind is that you could just put a sticker on something and have it really not represent value at all.
the I'm, I'm oversimplifying his argument i don't i don't recommend reading the book it's awful anyways the i often also wonder if people hate prices or the idea of prices or or buying things one at a time because of their experience as children and one of the biggest ways that their parents would turn them down is you know the child would say you know daddy can i have this and time after time again, the parent will come back with, uh, no, that's too expensive. That costs too much. You can't have it because it costs too much. And it was always just sort of a, a blanket statement that didn't compare the available resources or a, a, a rational path to actually achieving that. Like, oh, you want that piece of candy? Well, here's you know, here's 10 different ways you could come up with the money to get that. It's always just, oh, it costs too much. Uh, it, the price is too high. And I think people as children sort of get abused with this idea that prices are the, the enemy and not the sort of management of resources. So as, as we said, entities, whether it's Disney or health healthcare companies or the school or the government itself, uh, finds it very valuable to obscure pricing information. It might be that people are very willing to buy into this ruse because it alleviates that pricing pain, even though in the end they spend way more than they possibly would want to. Did I tell you that on the Disney Dream Cruise, there was Star Wars everywhere? Not only were they showing The Force Awakens in the movie theater there, they also had a special play where they had Jedis in training actually fight a Darth Vader actor who came in in a smoke-filled stage from a trapdoor uh, and had a, a fairly unconvincing lightsaber, though an awesome costume. And they even dubbed in real James Earl Jones dialogue for him to shake his fist to. The most alarming thing, though, is that Disney owns Star Wars now. And we know this because there was a big press release, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, and they actually made a pretty decent Star Wars movie, and we're all pretty happy. But if you go somewhere, that's the Disney experience. You go and you see the merchandising, and Star Wars has never been lightweight on merchandising. They practically invented movie merchandising. But now it's all intermixed with Disney, so you have Darth Vader mugs that have Mickey Mouse ears on them, and you have Boba Fett statues that have the Mickey, Mears, the Mickey Mouse ears on them, and you have, you know, like... Jawas hanging out with Elsa from Frozen. And you can really tell that the merchandiser in charge really doesn't have that love of Star Wars, like true Star Wars fans do. They just really couldn't give a shit about the the sacredness of these characters and these stories to us. And it's just holy evidence, you know, where they'll, they'll put, you know, a picture of Boba Fett or Chewbacca on a t-shirt, and then they'll put like a Jamaican, um, I'm loving it, man, type of vibe, you know, a text, or it's even, they even had ones where they had the, uh, an X-Wing fighter flying uh, right by the Disney cruise ship on the private island, so you got to see the palm trees and the nice beach and the beach chairs and then the big cruise ship, and then there's an X-Wing coming out of it and it says you know like may may the can't may may you dream the forces with you or something like that and just completely disrespectful and awful to the brand but that's what we get 
it's not our fault it it had to happen i suppose but it's unfortunate and let's keep in mind that disney is on a tear of buying big brands uh, such as marvel and the muppets and i really don't care if they start putting muppet ears on kermit the frog but it's going to really suck ass when they do it to cool superheroes that i like like the x-men and spider-man that made up a big part of my teen years just like star wars So you probably didn't know that I used to work at Disney Corporation. It's back when I was a management consultant and I, with some other people, had been hired very early in my career to commute to LA and work at Disney merchandising. At this location, they would make things like snow globes and other Disney collectibles. They were also in charge of t-shirts and clothing items and they also made the disney artwork which they had a whole different they've had a disney store line they had a disney liquidation store line which they sold merchandise that that didn't sell well at the main store outlet shopping and then they also had a store that sold animation cell art that was framed and then priced as collector's items. So it would be hundreds of dollars to buy a single frame of art from, say, Fox and the Hounds. Now, the one thing that was kind of neat about Disney is they did have a lot of Disney-ish stuff, like the headquarters had the seven dwarfs holding up the roof of the building. All of the conference rooms were named after different places in the movie, so we had Pride's Rock and Geppetto's Workshop and otherwise you think it would be a pretty cheerful place to work they did you were did have access to the future movies that were coming out so when i was there they were working on tarzan which they hadn't even announced to the marketplace so we had to sign confidentiality papers and they would have all of the artwork with all these different standards very strict measurements and proportions of how big tarzan's head had to be relative to his eyes and relative to his shoulders and very specific color codes for how the characters were to be used and they had to make sure that they wouldn't give away any key plot points if the merchandise did something special i don't recall making any toys so the toy division must have been somewhere else anyways our boring project was in inventory and merchandising management not very much not very fun stuff anyways Disney was one of the nastiest places I've ever worked in my entire life. I've worked with a lot of cultures, some of them sloppy, some of them lazy, some of them very serious, some of them very laid back, some very friendly, some very nasty. And the Disney employees, I guess it was so cutthroat to get a job there that everyone would be at work at like 6.30 or 7.30 in the morning. And even if you went out in the parking lot at 11.30 at night, it was completely full because everyone who worked there was still there and everybody was terribly rude to each other everybody was very willing to compromise or sabotage other people's work to blame other people to throw them under the bus to overcompete. and i would have really weird experiences like i there was one time i needed binder clips to bind up presentations for the CEO of this division, which I thought would be a fairly easy thing to do. I would go ask a secretary, say the CEO needs some binder clips. And she started crying when I asked her this. 
she, you know, she said those were her binder clips and she wouldn't be able to get other ones. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is really fucked up. So the, what I, my theory is, is that everybody was so eager to work there and be in a, in part of this, you know, sexy Imagineer setting and to be where they would tell people that they were, you know, helping make, you know, the happiest place on earth. And in reality, there was no happy place on earth there. They were just generating their own hell. Gladly go to war for you. With good fortune and a great hairdo, you'll bring honor to us all. Back on the Disney cruise, they had this policy where they would assign specific workers to our entire stay. So we had concierge who would know us by name, and we were expected to know them by name, who we could meet with and plan our days or get advice on how to do certain activities or make reservations, etc. And these were the same people we would meet every single day. And since we were in first class, uh, we didn't have to go to the service desk. We had two or three dedicated people who even went through a cocktail party one night which we were expected to attend and one of these concierge sat with us for a good 20 minutes to tell us her story of how she lives in Ireland with her parents and then signs five-month contracts to come here and work on the boat and I think you work like 14 hours a day non-stop for the five months I don't know what kind of time off you get but because there's so limited space on the boat for crew you can't necessarily have three different shifts of workers and then give them a lot of days off during that time because you just don't have the room to store extra workers to cover those shifts. So you just have to use the same workers to work a really long time, and then you give them months off in between contracts. Our other concierge was Indian, and he had the same story. He had three children, which largely lived at back in India, and he would, in the evenings, get to use a computer to Skype with them. But otherwise, he supported his family in India through these five-month grueling contracts on the sea. The same thing was with our housekeeper. We had a head housekeeper who literally stood in our hallway and would greet us coming in or out any, any time of the day, it seemed. Uh, we never tried her at midnight, but when we came out, it was, you know, hello, Jeff, you know, hello. She was from... Um, Indonesia, I believe. And she also had a baby back in Indonesia that she was supporting along with her husband doing these five-month contracts of grueling work. And of course, our waiter came to us to all of our dinner meals. And he also had a family he was supporting in Indonesia that he only got to see for two or three months out of the year, or otherwise just had a call on a phone or Skype. And what I found unusual is all of these people were very highly educated, and there was a good chance that they have a very similar education that I had growing up. Now, I have a job where I get to be with my family all the time, and my wife doesn't have to work. And the only infrastructure I have is a five-year-old computer, a internet service, and a cell phone. And then I do have the advantage of having... Besides being an American, I have the advantage of having my career experience be through, you know, Boston area companies where I worked with some very high-end stuff. But even that was 12, 13 years ago. And now I'm just a guy who sits in his t-shirt and his shorts with his five-year-old computer 
and is able to not only be with his family, but generate many multiples of income than these poor people. And, you know, only by basically using my voice and my fingers to type out words. And that's pretty intriguing because it seems like it'd be very easy for these people who had much of the same, you know, the same education, the same, maybe the same intelligence, maybe the same level of connectedness to the world, since all they need, you know, all you need today is a computer and the your Skype and the internet connection, that it seems like it'd be very easy for them to, if not them in particular, but just legions of people from these other countries to disintermediate my income and my, my way of life. And maybe it's happening and I don't see it, but we already had the big outsourcing revolution in 2001 and that trend seems to be declining a lot. We don't hear about this as much in the business industry of you know massive populations being moved over to these lower cost places. So I'm a, I don't have a, a unified theory of why this is still working. It might have a lot to do with property rights and governments because there's very little else that's keeping these people from entering a field like mine instead of these super laborsome, super restrictive contracts, which are probably considered very good for where they come from. They're probably considered quite wealthy and quite lucky to have them. I just have this feeling like this, not a sense of doom, uh, not a sense of pity, but some sense of uneasiness that uh, either it's not going to last for me or a frustration that it shouldn't last for them. Private jet is amazing. Holy Donald Trump, that chair has a massage button. After 20 hours on a plane with this bunch, you'll be begging me to crush your head with a rock. Crab cake. Jesse, have you ever been to Indonesia? Please. My dad's idea of an exotic vacation was running through the sprinklers while a Gloria Estefan CD played. Quiet, I am trying to read. You are reading? This plane just flew into a parallel universe. Don't worry, it's not a book. It's a graphic novel based on a legend about an island full of monsters. Ooh, do you think we'll see any monsters on our trip? Yeah, sure. We're gonna be taking care of him in our old age. In that clip, we have Disney's Jesse, a sitcom on the Disney Channel aimed at kids and young teens. Here we had the family... Uh, Jesse's a nanny who oversees five adopted kids of very wealthy parents who always are traveling abroad. They're on a private plane, and we get to hear some nice tie-ins, such as a Donald Trump reference, which is, you know, so relevant to our last one on nationalism, and then a reference to having a really crappy vacation, which was just jumping through the sprinkler, listening to music. And that was total luck. I just picked the first Jesse clip I found and got really lucky. Anyway, on the Disney cruise ship, they ignored much of Disney's content empire, which is their TV work. And 
I, I just have a list here, and there must be at least, uh, I'm going to say 200, maybe 300 different TV series that Disney has produced. And I guess it would be kind of tough to incorporate these into my Disney Dream Cruise experience, since most of these, a lot of these are live action, and they would have probably had to have the actors at their set age uh, be there, which they couldn't do. And then some of them, like Hilary Duff and Miley Cyrus, who used to be their stars, are now doing wildly different things. For example, uh, Cyrus is on stage uh, showing her body parts to anyone who will ask. Some of these shows include Lizzie McGuire, Kim Possible, That's So Raven, Hannah Montana, and my kid's favorite, Jesse, which we just heard the clip from, and then Liv and Maddie's another one they really like. And what's interesting about these shows, they're sort of really poorly done. The acting is simple and hammy. The scripts are basic. Overall, they're pretty kind-hearted. They're not mean like the nighttime sitcoms on the regular NBC, ABC type shows. So I don't I don't completely dislike them. Uh, but two, a couple of things that they all seem to have in common is the parents are always sort of separated from the main environment where the kids are, what the kids are doing. And everyone is very wealthy. And I wonder how that sort of fits into my Disney dream experience of where the objective of the cruise was to sort of separate parents from children with the kids club and then let everyone feel like they're extremely wealthy. Maybe that's the fantasy that Disney is trying to sell overall. And maybe it's more visible in their TV shows as a reflection of what the park experience is supposed to be by being separate from kids and very wealthy. In this scene, we see Mufasa fall and be trampled by herds after being tricked by his evil brother. And we see his young cub, Simba, find his dead body in the ravine. Simba here doesn't understand what's going on and starts walking around nervously, not knowing what to do. He, do, he doesn't even know if his dad's really dead or alive. Help! Somebody! Anybody! Help! Seeing that he's alone, he crawls under his dad's arm, heartbroken. This scene is particularly gut-wrenching as he can imagine, we can all imagine, seeing our parent die as a young child and then wanting nothing but for them to hold us and to comfort us in this horrible moment. Simba weeps. His uncle, Scar, appears. Simba. What have you done? There were wildebeest and tried to save me. It was an accident. I didn't mean for it to happen. Of course, of course you didn't. No one ever means for these things to happen. But the king is dead. And if it weren't for you, he'd still be alive. <gasps> what will your mother think? 
What am I gonna do? Run away, Simba. Run. Run away and never return. So one of Disney's most prolific and powerful and most well-used plot mechanism is to either have parents die or have the main character separated from their parents. This is obvious to most people, I think. Uh, But if it isn't, we can do a quick review to see how common of a device this is in Disney films. And so I have the list of Disney animated classics right here, going all the way back to some of their first ones. Pinocchio was all about the boy being separated from his new father. Dumbo was about Dumbo being separated from Jumbo. There's a uh, my wife can't even watch the film because she gets so sad watching Dumbo reach you know through the bars to be in his mother's embrace. Bambi is famous for the scene where Bambi's mother is shot. Going back to some of these other ones, Cinderella is about a, a poor girl who has to live with her evil stepmother. Her parents are dead. Alice in Wonderland leaves her family to go explore on her own. Peter Pan is all about the abandonment of having parents and having children escape from the purview of their parents. Sleeping Beauty is about a girl who's taken as a baby away from her parents uh, after she's given a curse. The Jungle Book is about a boy who has no parents who his parents died, I believe, in either a fire or a raid, and he has to be raised by animals. Even the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, uh, the boy who's friends with the Pooh is always having his adventures without his parents. Are you, getting, you can get the point, though. Uh, the Little Mermaid defies her parents and goes to live with human society. Beauty and the Beast is about when Belle's dad is imprisoned, and then she must trade her freedom for his, thereby being separated from her father. Aladdin, that guy doesn't have a dad. The Lion King, we just heard that gripping, where we actually see the death, which is kind of rare there. Mulan is about a girl who must leave her family to go battle on her own, defying her father. Tarzan is a story of, like the Jungle Book, where a man, his parents are killed and or lost, and then he has to raise himself along with animals in the jungle. We just go on. It just never, never seems. Lilo and Stitch, I don't know if you've seen that one. That one's not a big hit of a movie. Uh, it's, it's where two sisters don't have parents, and the older sister has to take care of the younger sister. Oh, look, they're, they're counting Studio Ghibli movies here as being Disney animated classics. That's interesting because Disney doesn't actually make them. They distribute them. But they have Spirited Away, which is probably my favorite animated feature of all time. And in that film, a young girl is found is with her parents, and they find this abandoned, what they think is an amusement park, and they find some free food, and the parents begin to eat the food, and they turn into pigs. It turns out it's a bathhouse for the spirits, and the girl has to work there doing hard labor in order to spare her parents from being eventually butchered into meat for the souls. It's a fascinating book. It's a, uh, a movie. It's a Miyazaki film. Highly recommended, along with his other movies. 
And then, you know, it goes on and on. Probably some of the few, there's examples that aren't, aren't this way. The Incredibles, for example, is all about participating in a family, oddly enough. And a lot of the Pixar films are, are don't fit the standard Disney plot line, including uh, Toy Story, which doesn't have much of a, of a parenting type of theme at all, since it's mostly about a team of toys. And perhaps one of the, the oddest ones that's not really anti or absent of parent is Up, which has the strangest plot probably of any Disney film short of Spirited Away. If you haven't seen Up, it's about an old man whose wife dies. He, to escape persecution of going to an old person's home, he ties thousands of balloons to his house and flies it to South America. He accidentally has a stowaway of a little Cub Scout boy who, in the, the true parent narrative, uh, has an absentee father and an unsure mother situation. They fly all the way to South America, and they team up with a talking dog and a prehistoric bird. And this team of four friends goes to eventually find another really old man who's an adventurer who's trying to catch the prehistoric bird. And they have sort of a, a wacky fight and eventually move the house into the desired place in South America and the man seeking the prehistoric bird eventually dies. But the big part of that story is the creation of a family of this little Cub Scout boy who desperately wants a father and actually finds a father in the old man and the old man actually finding new family where he didn't have one. So that's kind of a weird exception to this rule. Um, oh, that's enough. You can go through this list. It's, it's kind of fascinating to look at the plots of these and see how many similar elements they all have with each other. Now, the this plot mechanism of having your parents die or having the parents' absence, the biggest reason why I think they do this, and I'm, I'm not going to sort of hem and haw here, is that it makes for much more fascinating drama. For one, since children are so dependent on parents, the the fear of losing your your parents is very exciting, if not scary. And then secondly, it's almost the only way that they can give these children characters their own free agency to run their lives. If the parents were still in, and let's say, God forbid, they still had to go to school, like a typical person, it'd be very boring because they'd have to ask permission before they did anything. They'd be told when to eat, told when to sit down. And if they had to go to school, they'd be told what to do you know, to sit in a desk for eight hours a day instead of having fun adventures. So in order for them to have free agency and free will, essentially, they need their parents to die in order for the stories to work. Now, this is a thought I just came up with, and I don't know if it's right, but Disney movies have appeared, of course, in the time when, when film made them possible, and that would probably would have been the 1920s or the 1930s. The, the first film was released in 37. And in that time frame, we, we just sort of, we, the, you know, the planet Earth or the United States, had just come out of a, a time where, you know, 50 years prior, 95% of the population would have been agricultural, meaning that children didn't go to school, they worked on the farm, and they were wholly integrated with the family 24 hours a day, seven days a week, helping with the chores, learning from their folks, making sure the farm worked, 
and the nuclear family and even the extended family was all together a lot more. We see going into the late 1800s, we begin to industrialize and parents are having to leave the farm or leave the homestead and go to a factory to work. And then by 1937, we sort of begin the golden age of war, or maybe it's the devil's age of war. Since we had just come out of World War One, we're heading into World War Two, and then we'll later have Korea and Vietnam, which sent thousands and thousands of dads off to fight and potentially die. So between the industrialization of sending parents, at least one of them, to the workplace instead of the farm, and then the killing or the shipping of fathers overseas, we begin to see how the family begins to splinter. Then about 20 years later, maybe less, the sort of feminist movement happens and that still mysterious event to me happens where not only does one family member go to work, but now both mother and father have to work. And I've talked about this before, how it has all sorts of weird economic implications if your workforce suddenly doubles over the course of a few years. Uh, it would probably drive labor costs way down if you just think about if, if the supply of laborers came in. But then you had this necessity for the family to be even more apart. And schooling, which would have started in the mid to late 1800s, is tracking a- along with this these trends very nicely. Because when school started, even mandatory school, it was only a few hours a day, and it wasn't necessarily every day of the week. And as it liberalized and got more government-ized, governmentalized, the, the amount of hours that kids had to go increased the instance of or the the introduction of after-school programs like the latchkey type uh, babysitting programs occur and we see a constant breakdown of what would have been the traditional family that saw each other quite a bit completely almost disappear where parents and children are separated for the majority of their lives essentially 8 to 11 hours every weekday and I wonder if there could be some connection to why all Disney films insist on having children separate from their parents. And I don't know if it's causal or a coincidence or corollary, but if you were completely to think of this as a conspiracy, you know, would, would Disney be promoting the separation of children and adults, children and parents? through these movies, or are they celebrating it, or is it the separation of children and parents that they were reflecting upon? They saw this happening, and they're like, we see that children aren't with their parents anymore, so how do we make stories that support this or reflect on this or that these families can relate to constantly being apart from each other? And that trend, of course, accelerates and accelerates until we get to the 70s and the 80s and the 90s where school becomes more and more onerous. More of the parenting responsibilities are delegated to the school administration or the school teachers. And more non-parental activities, even going beyond latchkey to the constant driving to soccer games and dance lessons and all the extracurriculars that parents sign their kids up for. And then we can go back and reflect upon what the Disney dream immersive experience was, was going to be. And maybe that's a reflection of 
this long trend of separating parents and children to the point where that's what's considered vacation is you continue the usual work day of being apart into a new vacation setting that is parents and children separate pretending you're very wealthy and trying to be oblivious about the resources you're spending or the familial bonds that you're breaking so that was my review of disney dream cruise line and my experience with it and i'll leave you with a quote from walt disney himself he says movies can and do have tremendous influence in shaping young lives in the realm of entertainment towards the ideals and objectives of normal adulthood end quote well thanks walt but really what are these ideals and objectives of normal adulthood really supposed to be Oh